The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Barry Boyd. He is a clinical professor of medicine at Yale University's School of Medicine, an oncologist at Greenwich Hospital, and affiliate member of the Yale Cancer Center. His research areas include environmental risk factors for cancer, as well as cancer etiology, including nutrition and the role of insulin in malignancy. Dr. Boyd is one of the pioneers of the practice of integrative oncology, and he is the founder and director of integrative medicine at Greenwich Hospital, part of the Yale Health System. He also serves on the board of Environment and Human Health Incorporated. With almost 30 years as a board-certified medical oncologist, hematologist, and with a master's degree in nutritional biochemistry, Dr. Boyd has a unique approach to cancer and the prevention of disease. He most recently has focused his attention and provided expert witness in glyphosate-related cancer cases. Dr. Boyd, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I am really thrilled to be able to bring your voice and expertise to our listeners. I thought that your biography was interesting in that you were actually on your way to a career as an evolutionary biologist. You wanted to be an ornithologist, and your mother worked for Continental Baking and was involved in the promotion of Hostess Cupcakes and Twinkies. (laughs) That's my first slide at Yale on nutrition and health and the history of nutrition, and I use that fascinating part about my mother. What's really interesting is it's even more complicated and fascinating than that. My mother helped develop Twinkies and Hostess Cupcakes through her work at Continental Baking Company, which ironically, of course, was also an affiliate, a company under ITT, International Telephone and Telegraph, back in the 60s and 70s, where my mother worked. And it turned out that my mother, through her work, I had a year off, and I was planning to go to graduate school in evolutionary biology. I graduated from Cornell. It was in that Vietnam War time. I was living in New York. I was working at a place called the Strand Bookstore, a famous old bookstore. And my mother said, hey, listen, there's a great program that's being developed at Columbia Presbyterian. It's the new Institute of Human Nutrition, and it was being run by a fellow named Myron Winnick. Now, I will tell you, when I was an undergraduate, my advisor was a very well-known, internationally known nutritionist named Malden Neshon. And he tried to convince me to take a class in nutrition, but I said, no, no, I'm, I'm really, my career is in evolutionary biology and ecology and systematics. And I work with some very famous evolutionary biologists, and that gave me my whole perspective on biology was through the lens of evolutionary biology. And so I was you know, really on a track to become a biologist, but Vietnam was in the way My mother convinced me to think about this other program at Columbia Presbyterian, the Institute of Human Nutrition. So on a whim, I actually interviewed, and I was the first person who was accepted tuition, room, and board to go to Columbia. So I started there in the mid-'70s. I worked with Myron Winnick and an incredible group of researchers 
working on human development and the effect of nutrition on human development. And that has been one of the interests I've had, is how does early nutrition influence adult disease? Mm -hmm. And of course, now we look at all of what we're talking about, and that's really critical, early exposures, prenatally and postnatally, and what does that do to influence late adult illness? And his work was on the development of the brain. How does undernutrition, and he worked in Chile, and many of the people I worked with were from Chile. And when I was at the Institute of Human Nutrition, they, a lot of Pedro Rosso, who was a junior faculty member then, and my other uh, colleague who was a graduate student, Jaime Rosofsky and others, and we were all working together at Columbia, learning the fundamentals of nutrition, and we had great faculty at Columbia Presbyterian as well. What's fascinating is their work was from Chile. During this time, I learned and got this information from Continental Baking, my mother. The company, the main company, ITT, meanwhile, was undermining and had overthrown through the CIA, worked to overthrow the CIA's Salvador Allende. Salvador Allende was president of Chile, and ITT was controlling much of the telephone system in Chile. So this was devastating for my colleagues there, and I'm saying, oh, my God, my mother worked for a subsidiary of ITT. Wow. And so it's the most amazing, as I said, one degree of separation. Years later, as an internist and oncologist, I took care of a nice older gentleman, and I won't mention his name, but later on I discovered he was the senior vice president under Harold Janine, who was working directly with the CIA to undermine Allende. So he was a patient of mine, wow. hard to believe, in his 80s. So anyway, that served as the beginnings of my interest in nutrition, and I significantly shifted toward the role of nutrition in health and human development. And so when I then went to medical school at Cornell, as I always said, I had four years of nutrition in graduate school and one hour of nutrition in medical school. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it became a foundation around which the difference is nutrition is a multidisciplinary field that is relevant to every area. So when I went into at Cornell, I ended up becoming fascinated by cancer biology and being interested in biology it was critical that I not only look at how to become a good oncologist, but how do we see this through different lenses? When I completed my training, I came out to Greenwich, and then because, in part, it was a teaching facility for Yale, and within a week, my mother always said to me, and you mentioned my mother, she always said to me, answer your patient's questions. And I said, that was the kiss of death, because my patients had lots of questions, and I spent lots of time. And so I literally devoted the next 10 to 15 years to developing a program for them and how does nutrition and lifestyle and diet influence their disease? And the first question always patients ask is, why did I get this? Right. And so I then started delving into understanding the origins of cancer as a biologist. And so that's led to researching much of what we know now about the role of insulin resistance and weight and the evolution of disease over the last 100 years. And so I'll give you just one example. We know that there's been a rise in many modern Western diseases over the last 100 years, and certainly diabetes, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out that for me, the focus is how are they connected rather than being separate illnesses coincidentally rising during the same period of time. And, of course, we're learning now that diseases that used to kill people still do. 
as many people used to say back in the 90s and early 2000s, well, the leading cause of death for people at the turn of the 20th century was infectious disease, and now it's cancer and heart disease, right? Well, now, suddenly, bingo, here comes COVID, and we are relearning the critical impact of infections on even modern populations. It's truly fascinating, a little bit of a learning that we're all going through that we're not suddenly invulnerable to infectious disease. Exactly. Well, you are described as an integrative oncologist. What is an integrative oncologist? How does that vary from your run-of-the-mill oncologist? Well, an integrative oncologist, I have my own definition, and it's different from what many integrative oncologists out there will tell you. Many of them are there saying, here, diet, lifestyle, supplements, mind-body medicine, which is really important, you know, and I believe the critical need for many of those features. But I'm interested in the rest of the story. It's very different than, and in fact, I'm very critical about the role and risks of supplements. So I look at every single thing that people in the world of integrative medicine talk about. What's the right diet? What are the lifestyle features that impact on disease outcome? What are the lifestyle features that are linked to the origins of the disease, and do they impact on outcome? And how about dietary supplements? You know, remember, and I take an evolutionary focus on this. I look at populations, so it's really worth noting something really interesting. I mentioned, and you've heard, that one of the most common precursors to adult disease is the metabolic syndrome. The metabolic syndrome is hyperinsulinemia with insulin resistance before frank diabetes develops. And we know that patients who have this, and it's much more common and it's becoming more common in Western populations, and it's correlated with cardiovascular disease, diabetes risk. Now, I've talked to Jerry Reven. He's the father of Syndrome X. And I had the pleasure of having multiple conversations with him. He published a paper in the early 2000s about the origins of late adult disease and insulin resistance. What he did is he measured sensitive tests for insulin sensitivity. And what he did was he looked at the effect of those in three tertiles, high, intermediate, and low insulin sensitivity, or in reverse, you'd call it insulin resistance. And what he discovered was the people who are the most insulin sensitive got no heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular issues, stroke, or cancer. The people in the intermediate group had one-third and the highest level, two-thirds of all of the illnesses occurred in those who were the least insulin sensitive, the most insulin resistant. That was one of those key studies that pointed out that insulin sensitivity is a critical determinant of all these diseases. Mm. Now, if you look at what's interesting is, this was occurring in people who were not obese. They had this before obesity, and so there's growing evidence that obesity is not simply a cause of insulin resistance, but it's a consequence of the evolution of insulin resistance. And we now know more and more that insulin triggers lipogenesis. Now, I also look at early populations. We tend to think of us as having longevity. So there's another series of studies out of Africa by a a researcher named A.R. Walker. And he looked at the longevity of populations. So what is the average median lifespan of Western populations, 75, 80, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the underdeveloped countries, their median lifespan may be 35 to 40. But he asked another question. He said, because he looked at black South Africans in 1970 before HIV, he said, well, if they make it to to 50, who is going to live the longest? 
And he discovered that the black South Africans were thin and lean. Many of them had survived TB or trauma, but had to walk everywhere. They had a lean, you know, not a great diet, but they had a healthier diet because they were eating traditional foods. They had the longest survival, even though they had the shorter, mean lifespan. It teaches us that median survival, now we know this from hunter-gatherer populations, because the high infant and early childhood mortality from poverty and infectious disease, that leads to a shift in the median lifespan to a younger age. But those who survive are healthier and don't have modern chronic disease. So the black South Africans then had no diabetes, they had no heart disease, they didn't get cancers, they didn't get colorectal cancer. While the whites, the Boer population that he was analyzing, they were getting these Western diseases, highlighting the critical importance of early, early effects of childhood nutrition and healthy diet on the prevention of modern chronic illness. Absolutely. So I think it really highlights how important it is. It also says that obesity is a point on the path to these diseases rather than the beginning. Absolutely. Dr. Boyd, let me take one break because we are halfway through. And I need to remind our listeners that if you are just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Barry Boyd. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale Cancer Center. He is an integrative oncologist. And we are diving into his work related to the etiology of cancer, as well as his look most recently at how glyphosate, one of many herbicides used in agriculture, also impacts our health. I am curious to know about how environment and our environmental exposures contribute to disease. So when I was going through my dietetics training, we were really focused on food and individual nutrients and exercise to a lesser extent. And now my world has really expanded to say, you know, water is our most important nutrient. What is the quality of our water? What is in our air? How is our food produced? How does that contribute to insulin resistance and cancer risk and obesity and all of the things that you're focused on? How did you become interested in in particular, glyphosate, the leading ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup, now is owned by Bayer. Well, you know, it actually, people come after me now. You know, I'm at that point where I get recruited by multiple people because of my interest in the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, glyphosate is one of many, many chemicals. We are bathed in chemicals. Now, one of the people who worked with us when we were doing our best study and a diet study with environment and human health was Cynthia Curl, and she had shown that children who eat organic, you know, organic versus non-organic juices have much lower levels of pesticides, children. And the key to me, as I mentioned, in early development, my concern is that children are the ones who are the barometers of what's happening to us. Children and pregnant women develop body burdens at a young age and it builds up and they are really the victims and get some of the insults from environmental exposure. So it's critical we protect them. So she was doing this work with this. And recently, of course, we all know that the healthiest diet we can have is the Mediterranean diet. From a standpoint of disease prevention, it's the paradigm for dietary pattern, which is the way we think rather than magic foods. We think pattern eating. And I will say, by the way, one of the features of the Mediterranean diet that's been left out, the earliest Mediterranean diets were characterized by periods of fasting that were frequent. That's so right. the original work of Ansel Keys was in Crete, and the diet of Crete 
was Greek Orthodox, and they fasted about 172 days a year. They had various fasts. Mm-hmm. And so we forget fasts were imposed on populations before they had religious leaders. They created fasts so people would not eat all the food in case the harvest wouldn't come in. So if you look at timing of fast religiously in the Mediterranean basin, they're always in the spring or winter prior to the harvest. Because if the population controlled by the priests who impose these religious fasts, and I've gotten negative feedback about this, but I believe ecologically this evolved in all the religions of the Mediterranean as a way to protect against overeating. And it happens to be a great way to reduce mortality. But again, getting to the exposure issue, many of these early exposures are critical in terms of timing, and we have never had anything like this. The Mediterranean diet is classically plant-based. So I don't know if you saw this, but in November, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, a group of agronomy students studying in, of all places, Crete, they decided to do a very interesting experiment among themselves. So the graduate students, they had their pesticide levels drawn. They then went on to two different diets. They went on to a Mediterranean diet, traditional plant-based diet, or a Mediterranean plant-based diet that was organic, certified organic. The people who went from a Western diet to a traditional Mediterranean diet that was not organic their pesticide levels went up up to four times higher on the plant-based diet. Whereas those who were on the organic plant-based diet, they had one-tenth the level of pesticides of those on a conventional plant-based Western diet. In other words, Mediterranean diet's great, but we really now are realizing the industrial nature of our growing is imposing huge levels of pesticides, not just glyphosate, you know, many, many different pesticides are in there. The highest level of pesticides was actually, of glyphosate, was in the tea, those who drank non-organic tea, of all things. And I've worked a lot with this because we think, of course, there's a significant impact of many features of glyphosate, Roundup, and many of their formulations in Roundup that play as much of a role as the glyphosate itself, connected to potentially non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, But now we know it alters genetic gene expression by changing what's called epigenetic changes in DNA. So it has widespread effects and possibly what we call endocrine disrupting effects that can influence many features of early growth and development. So it's really scary when we're all bathed in this. Exactly. And in fact, in July of 2022, research was published showing that more than 80% of Americans have glyphosate in their urine. What does that mean? If it's in our urine, does that mean that just about every organ in the body is exposed prior to being excreted? I think that's an important point to make. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that's interesting because that's Shepard from Berkeley and she and Zhang. Zhang was the author of the meta-analysis on glyphosate and lymphoma, which is one of the best researched dose effect of glyphosate linked to lymphoma. And so they did show widespread exposures. Now, I also mentioned the women postmenopausal who actually were tested for glyphosate, and the levels of glyphosate correlated with what's called epigenetic changes or DNA methylation, mm. which is how DNA, the, the regions of DNA that don't code for genes, but actually control what genes are turned on or off, are impacted. And so it impacts on how genes are activated by having these kinds of changes from a from a contaminant in the environment. So these have profound long-term effects. They said these tumor promotion effects in this study are linked to cancer and other diseases. That's how important this is. 
So do you think that the way these herbicides are acting, is it via the genes? Is it via the microbiome? What is your thinking on the mechanism? The answer is yes. <laughs> right. In other words, it has impacts on all levels. It has been linked to impacts on microbiome. Microbiome can change metabolism, can change, you know, I mean, there's a whole host of effects there. It does link to direct genetic effects. We know that certainly the IARC data, their study in 2015, where they did their monograph showed that there were genotoxic effects of, of glyphosate. But it's beyond glyphosate, and it also alters that what we what I just mentioned, how genes are activated. It's beyond the direct effect of a gene, but on the regions of DNA that control what genes are active, and so that's critical. It affects many layers, but what we don't know is the impact when you put them all together, because there is nobody in America that has no exposure. That's right. And you know, you think we used to think the Inuits they were very lucky because they have this wonderful environment up there. Now they are heavily burdened. Even though they have no plants in their diet, right? They, you know, they have 5% of, or less of their diet is plant-based, except if they're westernized. And they have mostly fish, marine mammals, and all of those fish oils get plenty of vitamin D from that. They don't get it from the sun. But they get exposed to huge amounts of contaminants that come through the fish and the marine mammals that they get because they concentrate it because those are higher-level mammals that are exposed and build up those contaminants. So even they are heavily contaminated. It's very, very tough. They've done studies in Greenland as well as in Denmark and Inuit populations that show this heavy contamination from eating the fish of the north. Right. And then you can also fold in the microplastics that are in our environment. And it really is quite discouraging. And I'm wondering, what do you tell your patients? I know you have written two books, and that would be worth mentioning for our listeners. You've authored The Missing Link, Insulin and Cancer, and you have also authored The Cancer Recovery Plan. And I believe you are working on an updated version of that. Is that right? Well, I'm working on a book. I'm working on a lot. One is called The Nutritional Stages of Cancer. It's a reminder that where you are in your journey will impact on how you eat. Early on, pre-cancers, we can prevent or delay development of cancer through diet, lifestyle, together. But as cancers progress, you know, we have people using high dose of supplements, and many of the supplements may actually activate tumor growth. One of the most fascinating, what I call the landmark study nobody ever remembers, is that beta-carotene increased lung cancer risk in smokers. That's right. A simple supplement. And nobody knows that. I mean, you'd be amazed. I, I've given this lecture to radiation oncology fellows. They've never heard of that. Doctors never heard of that. Patients never heard of that. And yet I had a picture of beta-carotene being sold at a famous cancer center. I won't mention the name. In their gift shop, they were selling beta-carotene. I thought, ooh, that's bad. Yep. A human potential procarcinogenic agent. But, I mean, it's a reminder of the things we take for granted may be wrong. And we used to think it's fruits and vegetables, but it's not necessarily that. It's the link, is, as Walter Willow talks about his fourth paradigm, it is energy balance. Physical activity, limiting excess energy intake, consumption, and in the, particularly the role of insulin resistance. And there's this thing I call the diabetes risk reduction score, which is features of the diet that have been shown to be clinically related to lower cancer risk, lower heart disease risk, lower, and multiple cancers, uterine cancer, 
Breast cancer, of course, improved breast cancer survival, 34 to 40% reduction in pancreatic cancer risk, and liver cancer risk. We know that all of those cancers are directly linked to energy balance, in insulin resistance, elevated fat, and high hyperinsulinemia and its impact on metabolism. So these are central features to many diseases. I have a question about your thinking with regard to insulin and cancer. There has been such great debate about protein, fat, and carbohydrate. And, you know, being a dietitian, I am a food first kind of dietitian. I don't believe in taking supplements unless you are absolutely deficient. But I also wonder about the fiber status that we have and the importance of fiber in the microbiome. Ooh, so critical. critical. But if oh someone, my God. if someone is reducing carbohydrates with a mission of trying to reduce their insulin resistance or get control of their blood sugar, you know, you've seen these keto diets all over. What do you tell people about that? Well, I actually, I focus on insulin-reducing diet. Now, I told you about the diet score, right? Right. And what's fascinating about the diet score is that the features of diet that are linked to reduction in risk, and it's called the diabetes risk reduction score, are the features linked to reduction in both type 2 diabetes and cancer is high versus low fiber. Mm. So fiber is number one. Number two is nut intake. Well, that's probably not as big a deal. Things you would think of, high coffee is good and low coffee is bad. I'm not sure say it's bad, but coffee intake is one of the features. High glycemic index, trans fats, sugar-sweetened beverages, red meat, processed meats. But fiber is critical because we know that fiber through the gut microbiome impacts on the metabolism within the gut and the inflammatory changes within the gut. We also know, interestingly, from an oncology standpoint, that dietary fiber plays a huge role in the response of the immune system to cancer. So when we're treating people, and there's a research project that was done through MD Anderson by Jennifer Wargo. Jennifer Wargo is a, is a researcher in melanoma, and they found that dietary fiber markedly changed responses to immune therapy of metastatic melanoma. So low dietary fiber associated with reduction in response, high dietary fiber increased response. Why? The gut lining is where we prime the immune system. It's one of the central determinants of the efficacy of immunity. And it turns out that one of the key mediators of this is a byproduct of fiber metabolism by gut flora called butyrate. And actually butyrate downregulates the receptor for COVID. Now, interestingly... So, you know, it's actually a fascinating idea. It's called Neuropillin 1. So dietary fiber is part of the healthy diet that is correlated with better outcomes with COVID. And part of it may be a fiber metabolite that's changing the biology of response to COVID and its ability to bind to the receptors for COVID. This so is I, fascinating. I think it's sure they all are interconnected. You know, I think that's a really good send-off message, that everything is interconnected. We are out of time, unfortunately, and I want to provide a source for our listeners. Where can they go if they want to learn more about your wide areas of expertise? Well, you know, I have written a paper. It's available, I think, on the Internet. It's called Insulin and Cancer. I Googled it years ago. I put in insulin cancer and number one, it came up. There were 5 million hits and it was number one. All right. So well, I'll make that sure. That was the only time I was one out of more than a million. But insulin cancer was an integrative cancer therapies. It's still available. I've written a couple of chapters and one in a Johns Hopkins textbook 
my book, but there's a lot of information out there, and I'm glad to help people if they need that. Great. And I'll make sure to provide a link to that specific paper. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Barry Boyd, clinical professor of medicine at Yale University and an integrative oncologist, also helping to provide witness testimony on the dangers of glyphosate and other herbicides. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Boyd. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you.